Pod. Pod. Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel, and I don't think anyone's ever said this um, on a podcast in, in any previous season in Washington Huskies football history. The Washington Huskies are 14 and 0, getting ready for a national championship game. Danny, how about that? Man, I do want to give a shout out to the guy as I was walking to my seats at the Sugar Bowl, who said, "Say who." And, and and I and then he said, "Say pod." <laughs> <laughs> really, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, we're everywhere. Uh, I man. also talked to Bob Plummer. Yeah, I also talked to Bob Plummer in the airport today. Uh, there in the New Orleans airport, uh, he was he was at the game with his son Zach. Uh, Thirty years ago, Bob Plummer's father took him to the Rose Bowl to watch the Huskies play the Michigan Wolverines, and Bob and Zach are going to be among the. Well, at least 20,000 Washington fans that are going to be in attendance at the national championship game. Yeah, and I would imagine some amount more. 20,000 uh, through the school, at least. They sold out their allotment. There was, I don't know if you saw the story, I think Athlon aggregated it. Somebody wrote it a few days ago. I did. Prior to the CFP semifinals, that Washington was the only one of the four schools that hadn't sold out its allotment for the championship game. And there was some some hubbub about, you know, oh, if you know, uh, no Big Ten or SEC school would have tickets unsold. But, but uh, I was told yesterday by or on uh, on on Tuesday, I guess it would be by a school spokesperson, um, maybe 15 hours, less than 24 hours anyway, after they'd won the game, the, uh, the the rest of the allotment was sold out. So there you go. It was absolutely gone and, and dusted. And anybody who's been trying to scramble for tickets through that allotment knows that yeah, they're they're all spoken for right now. Yeah, um, I so you mentioned running into somebody who'd who'd gone to the Rose Bowl thirty two years ago, and um, I imagine you're going to hear a lot of stories like that. People who remember the ninety one team and um, comparisons between that undefeated season and this potentially undefeated season. Um, a lot of memories get made. You, you got to make some pretty fun ones, I imagine, um, being in the crowd at that game on <laughs> on Monday night. What was what was that like from your vantage point? It was, I mean, it was it was so fun. I've I've never I've never had that kind of experience at a game, um, because of the stakes, because of the way the game was played, and the really extreme turns in emotion, and that that final 45 second drive was as excruciating as anything I've ever experienced really outside of life changing losses of actual deaths in my family. Like I, just, I, I can't describe how excruciating that felt. And then the relief that followed after Elijah Jackson swatted the ball away it was it was really intense. Like there was a point when I kind of thought to myself and kind of laughed as I thought about it. I was like, "Am I going to cry if they lose this game?" Because it was possible, <laughs> and and I think it's because there was the feeling that they had it, and they really did. And it changed because of an injury, and I can't even say that like, "Oh, that's a stupid." The rule doesn't really make sense, and I'm I'm going to bet that it's changed. But at the same time, it's that's how the rule's written. There's and there wasn't anything quote unquote unfair being done. It was just a really unfortunate turn. And then when it looked like they might lose, I was like, oh my god! the The point where I lost it, Christian, and it was the only time I cursed the whole game was when they put the second back on the clock. <laughs> like that's where I was. I was swearing at the referees. I was. <laughs> I, I knew in real time because, that they that there had to be a second left. There had to be, right? Yeah, you could not you could not have reasoned with me at that point. I was he was either tackled in the field of play or you didn't stop the clock. The clock should run until the ball hits the ground. I don't care when it went out of bed. I was I was beyond rational at that point because it was excruciating to watch. And then the the relief and excitement when they won was. It's it. I've never experienced anything like that in sports, um, and it was really, really cool. From 
would say from the moment Grady Gross made the field goal to put them up nine with 240 left, it was in, if Texas wins this game, it's an all-time Washington collapse territory. Like it would, it would take an extreme collapse for Washington to lose the game from there. Um, and I think giving up yep. the field goal drive as quickly as they did was not ideal, but still, if you recover the onside kick, you can do the math, even if you don't get a first down, Texas should not have any more than 10 seconds or so pinned way, way, way deep in their own end with no timeouts. The game would be effectively over. Maybe you get one yes. intermediate completion, hurry up and spike it, and you run one more play, and that's that's all you've got. It's a Hail Mary situation or a crazy lateral hook and ladder over and over. It would be it would take a miracle. Um, it was interesting. I was down on the field at that point, and standing behind Washington's bench. And it, it's interesting watching kind of the the machinery go to work throughout the drive and assistants coming over to players and, okay, we're looking at 10 to 12 seconds here when we punt, telling them. And watch for this. Hey, and if we get the first down, you know, watch for this on victory formation, you know, just tightening everything up, covering all their bases. And you know, the the players obviously know the rules and how the clock works and everything, too. And as soon as Dylan Johnson doesn't get up, you can see it set in that realization that like, oh, no, <laughs> this isn't going the way it was supposed to go. The clock is not going to be, you know, would they end up losing probably 30 to 35 seconds because of that? I need to go back and because and, it wasn't the whole play clock that they lost. At, I don't at least think. they put 50 on the clock. Yeah, and it was right. so it was it right. was 45 50 back um, on the clock when they started the drive after the punt. Yeah. So, it, yeah. you could the the, the instant reaction was exactly. like, "Oh no, because of the clock," but then I think everybody realized like that it looked like Dylan Johnson was pretty seriously hurt. So, it went from, you know, you've you're now yeah. that's a competing emotion coming into play too and it was um it was interesting watching that kind of all unfold there. It seemed like they rallied pretty well, uh, held them on the first two plays, but it was just this confluence of you went from it being a sort of one in a million shot to, okay, that's going to take a couple long completions, but they've got, they've got time to get a throw into the end zone. And then there's the 41 yard completion, which I'll get, that was a hell of a catch. And that was, that was a, that was a hell of a catch to, Oh my God, they're really going to have a chance to Texas to win Washington to lose this game. And I think because you had reached that there had been a point where you thought, okay, they've pretty much got this one, even though knowing that there's still, there's still time and stuff could happen to, to feeling that way that, I mean, I, I would have said it was a coin flip when they, when they had first and first and 10 at the, at the thirteen. I, I felt like I felt the Washington certainly had a chance, but I was like, this is, and it, you just knew it was going to be absolutely brutal. And it, it, and it, and it was, and they held them out. They, at the end of it, Texas ran seven offensive plays from inside the Washington 20 in the final two minutes and didn't, didn't, didn't reach the end zone on any of them. And that's pretty damn impressive. I wrote this in my day after story, but, obviously Elijah Jackson deserves all the credit for making that last play. It was, you know, clutch and, and he made the play that needed to be made. Don't overlook Jabbar Muhammad bouncing back from getting beat on that deep completion because Ewers tried him immediately. Like it was boom, huge play, stunning play. Texas has the momentum stadium is roar, which you were there, you know, it was basically a, a Texas home game, right? It was a very, a Texas crowd and they, you know, feels like everything's, everything's turned in their direction and Ewers immediately takes a shot to Mitchell in the end zone against Muhammad. And he had perfect coverage was in perfect position. One play after getting B, I mean, giving up this huge momentum changing play, he bounces right back, plays his technique perfectly. He's in position to, to break that pass up. Um, Don't overlook that. Cause I mean, that was a one-on-one jump ball to their, their tallest, you know, best down the field threat. (laughs) And uh, yeah, that could have been ball game right there. I was hoping for a pick on that one. I'll be honest. I was like, oh, they're trying Muhammad. Um, but you're right. And you said 
He looked to be a little banged up after the long completion, which I didn't notice in real time. It was that no, it was after that play. It was after the incompletion um, when he came off. Oh, so, it was after the incompletion that he was that he was banged up. Okay, yeah. So they they called timeout. I kind of wondered if they were calling timeout in the hopes mm-hmm. that they could get him back in there um, because he you know he needed assistance, so was going to have to miss that play unless they called a timeout. He didn't go back in for the play right after the timeout, but he did go back in. Um, I guess it would have been one play later. He was on the field for for the last play, and and I think the play before it too. So. Uh, they he was healthy, and I I asked Kalen DeBoer. Um, they had a teleconference today with the with with DeBoer and with Harbaugh, and then with a couple of Michigan players and with Penix and Trice. And DeBoer said that all the guys who got dinged up in the game who came back in, like Muhammad and Devin Culp and Nate Kalepo, um, it doesn't sound like any of that's serious. Like you know, obviously they they finished the game, so you might assume that. But just for for clarity's sake, it does sound like those guys are fine. I know they've said that Dylan Johnson has a chance, or at least I know that that was what uh, what Ryan Grubb told KJR uh, early in the week. Do you think there's a legitimate chance that Dylan Johnson plays? It sounds like it. You you've got to um, you got to take the gamesmanship uh, factor and consider that a little bit, right? It's a national championship game, and mm-hmm. if there's any way he's right. going to play, are they going to come out and say no and and, and give Michigan that edge? I kind of doubt it, but yeah, I mean, Ryan Grubb did say on KJR that, that he expects him, um, to be back and on the, the teleconference today, I know Kalen DeBoer, I don't have his exact quote right in front of me, but he, he basically said that he is expecting, he's anticipating that he'll play. It doesn't sound, I mean, the way they're talking about it doesn't make it sound like a slam dunk. That's just my interpretation um, of, of like covering these guys for a couple of years and hearing the way that they talk about injuries and those sort of things. Um, you know, DeBoer or um, Grubb mentioned an x-ray that was negative and that they were maybe doing some more tests on Tuesday. Um, I, it kind of seems like the, the overarching message from DeBoer is that it's not a new injury. Um, it's what he's been dealing with. I assume that means it's the foot that got stepped on against Oregon state. And he, you know, was, was really hurting at the end of that game, was really hurting throughout the Apple Cup, um, was talking to reporters actually in New Orleans last week and, and was and mentioned, you know, that that he was on some some pretty serious medication in the Pac-12 championship game um, running against Oregon. And, you know, I, I think he's just really hurt and cutting through it. And he's he's played at a high level despite it. So if it's just a pain tolerance, I mean, if it's just a matter of can you get through one more game, I don't think they keep, can keep him off the field. I mean, he's the kind of guy who just, if he can play, he's going to play. But um, it just, I don't know. There's it, Listening to their comments, it just, to me, it kind of feels like it's it's not impossible that he'll play. Um, but if he does, man, he's going to be, he's going to be hurting. But I guess that's nothing new with him. Such a tough dude. Such a tough dude. What did you think the biggest decision that the biggest game, like biggest decision that Kalen DeBoer made in that game? Because I was going back through and thinking about it. I think it might, for me, I think it might have been his decision to go for it in the second quarter when they were back at their own their own thirty three mm-hmm. is where where I think it was, and they'd been stopped the previous possession on fourth and one. There was a momentum change in the stadium. When, because Jalen McMillan catches the pass, it's initially ruled a first down, it's reviewed, they change it, which is probably the right call, though I will reiterate my anger over them using camera angles that don't go directly down the line to to make rulings on that. They're using a, a bad camera angle to do that, but I'll concede that one looks like it probably was short. And then Washington tries to draw them offside. Texas holds its water. The pro Texas crowd goes nuts, which is hilarious because you're giving somebody a cookie for doing what they're supposed to do. But it did feel like there was a momentum change in the stadium at that point. And then DeBoer just rolls out there and is like, now nah, we're going to go for it. And they ran it this time. It wasn't a wildcat. That was a, to me, that was one of the more important momentum moments of that game. And Washington kept Texas from feeling like it was in control. Yeah, I would I would completely agree. That was the decision. And when they sent the offense out 
and it's becomes pretty obvious that they're just trying to draw him off. Um, which is always funny. It's just the cat and mouse is hilarious. Uh, and they call the timeout and Texas fans start, you know, celebrating like you won the down and it kind of seemed like they did. I turned to the person next to me in the press box and I was like, would they go for it anyway? Or that would they send the offense back out after this timeout? And I, I was watching really closely because I'm like, I kind of feel like they're going to, you know, like the fourth and one, they kind of don't really seem to take the field position <laughs> into account um, unless they're like way back yeah. up. Um, and what was it? It was 14-14 at that point, right? I, I think that, yes. I be- believe that was the score that put him up um, 21 to 14. Yeah, they were. So that's correct. Texas had tied it at 14 after the, the Jeremy Bernard uh, muffed punt and, you know, kind of got itself back in the game or at least didn't allow Washington to take control the way that it wanted to. The Huskies um, turned it over on downs, right? They went, they, they went for it on the, the fourth down Mm -hmm. on the next possession, didn't get it. Texas gets it back. And, uh, and the Huskies forced a, a punt to get the ball back, but still it's like, okay, if you give it back to Texas here, they've got a chance to go ahead and it's deep in your own territory, you know? So that was, yeah, I mean, that you, you, hard to say any fourth and one decision will ever be bigger than the one in the apple cup. But that was, um, like, I, I think that was the one I said on Twitter, that was a huevos drive. And it, it was, I mean, that was, they For absolutely sure. needed, needed the first down. They needed to score. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of Kalen DeBoer's philosophy in a nutshell, I think. That's hard to stand up to it and do it in that moment though. Or at least look, I'm, I'm all on board. I love how aggressive Kalen DeBoer is on fourth down. I was really uncomfortable when he went for it there. When the offense went back out, my reaction was, Oh God, no. And I was much like my feeling was you shouldn't have tried to draw them off sides because that gave their crowd a chance to really get going and feel like we backed them down. We, even though you didn't, it's not really accomplishing anything to not jump off sides, but there was that feeling. I was like, you probably should. The, the chance of drawing them off sides wasn't worth the boost and just energy that was within in the stadium. And then when he sent the offense back out there, I was just like, yeah, I was scared. I was like, the oh, I don't like this. I don't, I don't like the Caleb. And then they get it. And I'm like, that's, I mean, that's a courage of convictions and believing, no, that's the sort of decision we make. And insulating yourself, because the whole idea, like the whole premise behind what people now refer to as analytics is taking some of that emotion and gut out of the decision making and saying, no, it makes more sense to do it this way. It makes, and in that game, you could, possessions are going to matter more than field position in this game. That's, that's what matters most. 40 yards of field position is not as important as a possession. And we've, we, if we gain one yard, we extend a possession here and we think we can do that. We're not going to be afraid to, to, to take the chance to do it, even though they just stopped us. That takes a lot of guts, man. I I'm, I'm happy. He's he's the one making that decision. Cause I don't know how many coaches would have done that in that moment. It was, um, it was it's it's shocking to see it to see the offense go back out there but also not surprising at the same time i mean unsurprising enough that i i did kind of have a thought that they might do it i was keeping a really close eye on them because of that and i like i i was watching Penix in particular and they kind of broke the timeout and he was clearly moving back toward the field and i was like oh okay they're going to go for it wow all right um do you do you make anything this didn't even occur to me frankly until it didn't, you know, it, it didn't go the right way and, and it became a talking point. I've seen people suggesting they should have taken a knee on third down instead of running the ball and risking and risking an injury and a clock stoppage or a, or a fumble or something. Um, I, I don't know a coach in the country who would have done that in that situation. Yeah. I, I talked to Mitch Levy earlier today for a Mitch unfiltered podcast, and he's very much of that opinion that the, I can see the logic behind it. I'm trying to think of times where I've seen a team take a knee or essentially take a knee on third down in anticipation of a punt. It's also the exact same situation almost to a T of what it was at the end of the 
Oregon game in the in the Pac-12 championship game and they ran it and got the first down, it's it strikes me as resulting in which you look at an observed result and say, like, what could you have done to avoid that? And like, oh, you just take a knee on third down. But I guess there is some merit to it. Here's what I would say. I don't think it was wrong that they ran the play as they did. I do wonder if it's worth modifying sort of the approach at end game situations, much in the same way Chris Peterson did after the fumble against Arizona, where they adjusted sort of their, their MO for managing the clock late, but it never occurred to me that he should have taken a knee in that situation. That was not, that was not something that occurred to me. I don't think I've ever seen a team trying to run out the clock or trying to consume clock like that have an injury that grants the opponent the fourth time out. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I was more likely to think, could the could the offensive line have physically carried him off the field to avoid that? And not saying that they should have, just <laughs> I've never seen that before. So <laughs> that was, could, could you do that? Could Or would the, would the official say like, no, you have to let him? Because the rule is there, obviously, for player safety, which is the utmost concern, but I was still like, if they could have just, fireman's carry like all of a sudden parker brailsford after 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 block and sweat for so much of the game just care tote him across to the sideline that that might have been preferable yeah i actually don't know if like if, if the if the five of the linemen um just begin carrying him off you know celebratory style <laughs> up on their shoulders does, does the does the official what, step in and say you can't was, do that you can't do that because they did it with i'm trying to think it was Byron Leftwich, I think he was in the pros, though. He wasn't with Marshall. His O-line would carry him down the field because he was playing on such a badly sprained ankle that he didn't want to jog down to the field to where the next play was going to be. So he would basically put his arms around two linemen and they would run him down the field. Um, and that should tell you like how much pain Dylan Johnson was in, too, because as, exactly. as and tough that's, as he that's is. A, and, that's and 100%. Like, of- you got to think he knows, right, that oh this is probably you know this is bad stopping the clock so that 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 should tell you like just how how nasty that injury probably is and and i don't mean like specifically this time around but just the injury he's been playing through since oregon state basically pretty much all football players are exceptionally tough and i think you could even say all football players are pretty tough dylan johnson is exceptionally tough and to be in a situation where he couldn't get off the field i can't imagine the level of pain that that he was in and nothing there is zero part of me that feels that anybody could have or should have done something to avoid it just because like dude the biggest concern is that the guy's i mean the guy's injured um it was just such a weird and then the fact that it ended up having opening the door as wide as it did for texas um they should have run the double reverse flea flicker on third down i think instead of running the ball or going for two (laughs) pull pull that pull that flea flicker back out and let's just see well, that was the thing when Mitch first brought it up to me. I was like, you think they should have thrown it on third down? He was like, no, <laughs> because there's a couple times. Well, even in the Oregon game, they threw and ended up getting a first down with it to, to Jalen McMillan. And but I was like, there's zero way you should have done anything to put the ball in the air at that point. I just I think it's a, like I said, I think it's a, taking an observed result and trying to work your way backwards to figure out how to avoid it. I don't. I don't know if that's a realistic sort of point to make. And if you would do that going forward, how much are you actually, it, it might be worthwhile if, if you're ever in that situation again to take a knee, but I just, I think it was such a fluke convergence of circumstances. Were you immediately upset with the decision to throw the ball on third and 10? on the prior possession right before Grady Gross's field goal? No, because I wanted him to score a touchdown. No, I wasn't. No. See, I, get I, I thought you're still in a, you're still in a, you're still at a point where you're looking for, you're looking for points. I, I didn't, I didn't react to that. Um, I liked how aggressive it was. That, that was, that, that was my thought is that's, that's, that's how you've played this whole year. And, your best players having, I thought it was his best game. Um, I thought it was one of the best quarterback games I've ever seen. 
and and you really have a chance to to put the nail in the coffin there that you go for it rather than playing for 40 seconds or essentially kind of I think you would have been forcing them to burn a timeout at that point. I don't disagree with that mentality. My thought would be why then would you go so conservative on first and second down? Um, I mean, you ran the ball with, mm-hmm. and, and not even with Dylan Johnson, with Tybo Rogers on first and second down. So you're going to put the ball in your true freshman backup running backs hands twice. And, and then on third down say, okay, now it's now you let your best player try to make a play. Um, and frankly, I was surprised that, that Steve Sarkeesian didn't call timeout after the first Tybo Rogers run. Um, I was mm-hmm. looking for him to immediately call timeout thinking, what's he doing? You got, you have to call timeout here. You know, this is, you're, you're, da- you're down up against it. This is when you start using them. Um, and then he called it after the second one. And I thought, okay, eh, they're in third and 10. I think that forcing Texas to use a second timeout is more important than trying to make a play here. And I think there's, you know, there's a way you can do that too, right? You can put the ball in Penix's hands and have a pass play on and, you know, I think it's um, it it's maybe a little more forgivable if there's something there and he makes a throw to an open receiver or to a receiver who should be open and he just misses or there's a drop mm-hmm. or the DB in coverage makes an awesome play and you just think, well, you you went for it, you had it, you trusted your best player to make a play and it just didn't happen. That's gonna that's gonna happen. But it was a it was basically a throwaway on a he got pressured right they had somebody came free i think texas brought one more guy than washington had into block and he yep. got flushed and the play was blown up and i think there was a if I'm off the top of my head if i'm remembering right i think there was a receiver in the area but it was not a real high chance of completion it was a basically a throwaway um it, that's that it just seemed to me that was exactly what you couldn't have there i thought that Texas just won. I thought that that was a, a situation where their call, either Washington was not expecting the, the look that they got or not expecting the coverage that they were in, or maybe it was just the guy coming free, that that Texas won in that one. And either Penix failed to recognize it and change out of it, or Texas disguised it well enough that it just it just wasn't there. And rather than force it... Um, I I thought saw it as a good process that just had a bad result and they decided to live and fight another day. Um, I wasn't that upset about that one. I, I will say if I was a Texas fan, I would be very upset about the first of those four plays, the first of the final set of downs, the first, first and 10 from what was it? The 12. Yeah. What was that? The swing pass to the running back. <laughs> What in the that world? was Sark, man. Like that, and I, I think I've been. I like. I I don't have sort of a a bias against Sark, and there's. I I hope he finds success and happiness. Um, I think he's a really good play caller. I think sometimes he's too good a play caller for his own good, because sometimes he does stuff. And it tends to happen in the red zone or it tends to happen when he just decides that he doesn't, it's maybe it's too boring for him to run between the tackles. But that was, that was one of those pure Sark play calls where I was just like, what are you doing there? Like, what, yeah. what, what, what was the thought process on that one? They, uh, they went away from the run, didn't they? It kind of seemed like they were going to get whatever they I wanted so. running the ball. And I know that like Washington's offense kind of does that to teams. Kalen DeBoer has talked about that, even dating back to last season that, when you when you know that you're playing an opponent that can score at will and score on explosives and score fast and and you know they're going to put points up that maybe that puts a little pressure on you to to try to be more explosive yourself and that means throwing the ball instead of running it but sure seemed like uh, Jaden Blue and C.J. Baxter were going to going to kind of get six seven yards a pop if they wanted it yeah I mean it was early too right like four of their first six drives they punted. They were averaging. It felt like, especially when they went between the tackles, that it was really effective for them. And they they did not. They did not. If if I was a Texas fan, that's that would be my number one question: is why why didn't we run it between the tackles more? Because that's that's really where it seemed like they they enjoyed some fairly consistent success. Um, 
and yeah, maybe it is Sark feeling like we that's we don't want to play at that sort of pace because we, we might end up getting lapped. But it's a tie game at halftime, and I I I I felt that that was the thing that they did best, most consistently, is when they when they really when they ran between the tackles. When did you really start to feel like Washington's probably going to win the game? Honestly, I mean, the first completion of Polk really, it, it was such a well-thrown pass and it was so perfectly placed. But I, I think the moment where I was really like, they're, they're not going to be, was the, was it in the second quarter when he had the 51 yard throw to Rome that was kind of over the middle? I think so. I'm thinking of the right part. When they had the downfield throw to Rome, I think that's I think that's when I was like, they're they're not going to be able to do much. That Washington is going to be able to score the points it needs to win this game. Um, and and feeling because when it got to halftime, and even though Texas had scored late, and it was and it was twenty one twenty one, I didn't like that last possession, and I felt like they didn't have. But Washington's getting the ball, and I really felt like okay, I I like our chances. I was not. I was not by any means discouraged. I felt really good about things at halftime. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think I think it was that that downfield throw to Rome when I really felt like Penix is on, and and he was, and we spent some of the some of the middle of the season wondering what I'm I'm going to believe that there was there was some sort of health issue that because the way Penix looked last night or the way he looked in the sugar bowl was, was very much what we saw before the Oregon game. Like he was, he was a goddamn sorcerer. The, the couple times where they did get pressure and he's ducking and resetting, everything's on. Couldn't placed it better. He was on freaking fire. Did he look um, faster to you on the zone read polls? Like, I, I don't know that I've seen him, get out and accelerate in the open field. It wasn't really the open field, but I guess just his acceleration on those, um, he, he looked like he was moving better. I don't know. I mean, maybe that goes to your point a little bit. Uh, I think everybody in this game obviously is healthier than the last time you saw him, but there was a, there was an interesting little wrinkle too. Yes, he did look quicker. I also thought they, they clearly saw something and he was very alert to if, if they, whether they recognized it in the game or what, there was a very specific read because two of those were clearly on uh, options on, on his part where what he saw is he pulled it and they, they did not account for him. They just didn't. Um, and, and yeah, I did think he looked quicker. Did you see the video? Somebody made flipping the, uh, flipping the, 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 the TV copy to make Michael Penix Jr. Right-handed. Yeah. But so what I was wondering is that that people recognize the velocity more when it's coming off of a right-handed thrower? I, are people now just realizing that he's that he's got a cannon? That was weird to me. It was strange to me that it caught so many people's attention because it's like there is there something on here like it looks weird because he's right-handed and I'm used to watching him throw left-handed but it's not like I thought he was throwing the ball harder because it was coming off of his right hand. Yeah, I I think it, just for the talk of how his throwing motion is maybe a little unorthodox. It's like, well, would you think it was so unorthodox if he was right-handed and here's what it oh, looks like oh, I right-handed. See. Um and it's just it's a very he just looks like a right-handed quarterback with a really quick release and a strong arm, you know? Yes. Okay. Oh, I see. It would, would he be get people wouldn't think it's as funky as it is. That's, that's probably true because there, I mean, he's certainly not the only person that doesn't step into throws as a sort of conventional quarterback training. And they're even showing like Jordan love from the Packers, like Favre and, and Aaron Rodgers will throw passes where neither of his feet is on the ground. Um, Maybe, maybe he wouldn't be considered so, people wouldn't talk about him being unorthodox. I think it was it's it's wild to watch the power he generates though without without seemingly sort of having a base as most most quarterbacks have. Um 
because he could he can just flat out fling the ball. The the throw he had to McMillan on the touchdown, the that was in the second quarter, and then the throw he had to Jack Westover were just wicked. How it's just his fastball. It was man. (laughs) Like I said, he was he was on one in that game. It was it was really it was really fun to watch him play. Yeah, I mean those two throws you mentioned, and and probably some others. Um, it, if if you've got ninety eight percent of college starters, you you can't even try that throw. You know, I mean it's because it's got to be thrown with such velocity to get it between two defenders on target, and not just on target, but on target with enough space for the guy to haul it in. And and um, and the one to McMillan was just like. I don't know how many, you know, that that's an interception for most college quarterbacks. And it was a an easy touchdown. Because yes. <laughs> he's got a fastball. So what it reminds me, Brock Heward had this happen. I think he was in Miami when it happened because he was visiting his brother. And he was playing catch with somebody, um, some drunk guy down at the beach. But Brock was playing with his right hand. And Brock, like, like, like Penix is left-handed. And the guy was kind of like talking to him about like, Oh, you don't really have that strong an arm for an NFL quarterback. And then Brock threw one as hard as he could left-handed and went right through the guy's hands and like smacked him in the face. <laughs> Maybe that's like Penix. That might be overly dramatic, but yeah, I mean, Penix, the first one I really saw it was last year, the or the throw, the throw to Taj Davis against Oregon, where you're just like that, the geometry of that play where you don't, th- I didn't think that was possible. And, and he just zipped it in there and there's nothing you can do. Like that's that coverage played really well. It was the same with the play with, with Westover that I'm a, I think the linebacker got the right depth on his drop. And I think the cornerback was where he was supposed to be. And it's just that Michael Penix can throw it so freaking hard that the linebacker couldn't react in time to keep it from getting to to the target. He he beat the coverage because of his freaking arm. Yeah, and going back to the uh, the zone read thing, it reminded me Roger Rosengarten did say that was a he said that was definitely a game plan play. We knew if that DN goes and plays a little sweet motion, that Mike has the chance to keep the ball. So I think they saw. Um, I don't know if it was Texas's defense specifically, or if if when they ran that play. Um, the, with the, the sweep to, I think it was, it was Bernard both times, if I remembering correctly, uh, in the past, maybe they noticed that, Hey, you know, that nobody's respecting the, the keep here and, and why would they, right? Cause he never, he's never pulled it. He's never kept it. So, you know, maybe you, you can count on the same thing against Texas. That was, that was effective. Um, you, you kind of saw that, yeah, uh, Michael Penix can move, can move a little bit. He looked, uh, he looked pretty quick there. Are you are you hearing are you hearing the streetcar activity to... outside here? Oh yeah, Houston streetcar. It's yeah, not baby. quite as quaint and uh, and idyllic as the as the New Orleans streetcar, which is much much more historic. Uh, Houston's is a little it's a it's a little more modern. Um, yeah, that's true. You've already driven and relocated uh, to the other side of the Gulf Coast. I did a nice little drive over to Houston on Wednesday. Um, got here maybe an hour ago. Well, got to got. I mean, had to return the rental car to the airport and then take the shuttle. It, taking the shuttle from the rental car center to the airport to then call an Uber to go to where you actually want to go is a little bit frustrating, but it, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> this talking about Penix remind like it, it's it's a it's a good segue. This season has become it's become very difficult to assess the historical context of what they've accomplished without falling into prisoner of the moment. Like if you loathe being prisoner of the moment and like falling into that trap this year has kind of presented some challenges because it's like, well, they're 14 and zero, and that's never happened, but they haven't won a national championship. So like, you can't say it's their best season ever. Um, if they do beat Michigan, and win a national title. I think you could say it's their greatest season ever, but I don't know that you'd say it's their best team ever. I don't think they're as complete as the 1991 team. You know, I, I'm watching Penix against Texas, and I, I think I even said during the game, I'm like, if they win this game, this is the greatest performance in UW quarterback history. And 
I I don't think that there's even a comparison. I don't think that there's another game that a Washington quarterback has played on that stage with those stakes. And you could say, well, but the 14 playoff has only existed since 2014 and they've been there twice. So what are you really comparing it against? Is Marcus Tuyas Asopo 300, 200 against Stanford in 99, a better performance, you know, maybe, but I, I think all things put together, this is number one, right? For the magnitude of the moment. Yeah. He, he was incredible and it's a huge stage and it put Washington somewhere it's never been, which is in a national championship game. It's been to Rose Bowls before and it's won a share of a national title. I covered the, the 300, 200 game, which the daily, which we are proud alums of, uh, commemorated as bad ass because he was playing with a bruised butt cheek. That great game. headline, such a great um, headline. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it's tremendous. Uh, And I get what you're saying about you can become sort of overly beholden to trying to find the proper historical context, which is really impossible because journalism is essentially the rough draft of history, right? Like it's written in, in, in essentially real time and then becomes part of what we later look back on. But if you want to even say like a modern era of college, college football is different than it was 30 years ago. It's, it's, it's a fundamentally the game and how, how the rules are governed and, and those things is similar, but everything about the recruiting and the national base of things and transfers and all of that sort of stuff is so different that I've never seen a player have the two seasons that Michael Penix has had here at Washington. And two years ago, Washington lost to Montana at home. And now it's going to be playing Michigan. And it's 14-0. and And if it wins the game, it's going to be the national champions. And the reason that it's gotten to that point, a lot of people have chipped in. And I think Roma Dunze is, is the best player on the team. But the reason that it's gotten there is because Penix is so freaking good. And that position is that important. So... I don't think you can make too much of how well he's playing and how fun it was to watch. And really for that whole dip. And after the apple cup, when people are wondering like, Oh, is Michael Penix? How is he? Is he okay? Is he really that good? Is he maybe not as good? Did the pressure get, and then you watch that game and you're like, that's one of the best quarterbacking performances I've ever seen. That was Deshaun Watson versus Alabama in the 2016 season, 2017 national championship game that that was, he was unbelievable. Those receivers weren't wide open. In fact, the one time that Roma Dunze was wide open, he underthrew the ball because that might've been 70 yards down the freaking field. It's, it was unbelievable to watch him. Like he was, he was off his ass. Yeah. He, um, I'd never seen anything quite like that. I mean, I, there were people, you know, you know, on Twitter talking about this is this is the best quarterback performance in CFP history. And I'm seeing that thinking like, well, then it's got it's got to be the best quarterback performance. But the, the thing is, I don't know that you saw Penix do really anything that he hasn't done over the course of a game before. Like it, it, it's it, it's the magnitude. It's the opponent. It's the stakes. It's the stage he did it on. Um, but man, I think back to like Michigan state and I, I guess the, the, but the mm -hmm. difference there is I'm going to argue against myself. He had guys running wide open all game and yes. man, how many throws did he make in this sugar bowl to guys who had maybe half a step or less? I mean, Texas's DB has got to be shaking their heads. Like he just put that ball again in the only spot where it could have possibly been completed. And he just did it over and over and over again. And you know, you, it's not the first time he's made those sort of throws, but to do it that consistently throughout four quarters against a defense that's been pretty good. Of course, their past defense is their their weakness relative to the rest of that team. But um, man, it really was. I mean, it was. I was talking to a buddy of mine. He said it was it was like watching an NF. You just take an NFL quarterback and put him on a college team in a college football playoff game. That's what it looked like. And it was down the field. 
it was an extraordinarily high completion percentage. I mean, he completed 20 of his first 24 throws. I need to go back and watch Well, I'm going to go back and watch it again just to relive it. But to the number of throws that he missed, because he has made incredible throws all year long. I would, what, he was 29 of 39 in the game? How many of those nine incompletions were throwaways? Because I'm thinking off the top of my head, it's at least four where he decided it wasn't there and he just put it where nobody was going to get it. He just, he didn't, it, it, everything he threw downfield was on, to, on, on, on an absolute dime and he didn't miss any throws. He was, he was so, he was just, it was, it was, it was incredible to watch. What was your post-game experience like? I mean, how long did you stay in the stadium? Did you watch the trophy ceremony? What was stadium? that like? I did. I watched the whole I watched the whole trophy ceremony. I was exhausted first of all. Um when Elijah Jackson swatted the ball away, my reaction was extending both arms straight in the air, balling up my fists and screaming as loud as I could. And then like celebrating with the guys that I was sitting next to and standing next to for the whole game. And then there was a Texas fan that was, that was next to me and he was great. Um, we kind of, he kind of sat there for a little bit. And then when he went to leave, like we talked a little bit, um, I wasn't going anywhere. We kept chanting, kept just shouting. And there was nobody, nobody wanted to leave. Songs are coming on. They played purple rain which I would say that we're fairly good at singing Purple Rain. It's weird to have that be a football celebration song. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's quite as sort of dissonant with the ethic of college sports as Smells Like Teen Spirit is, but it's close. Like, you just know that there, there was zero part of, hey, this would make a good college football anthem. But it's fun to sing. We all know. Then they played Journey. And that's, I feel like everybody knows a quarter of can't stop believing and nobody realizes how long it takes to get to the part where Steve Perry really cuts loose. So it's a weird song for people to try to sing along to, but everybody did. Um, and then, and then walking out, it was, everybody was just so excited and just sort of this collective joy, which I think was spiked because of how excruciating that final minute was. And you had this extreme swing from they've got it. Like once they recover the onside kick, realize they, they're, they're going to have almost no time when they get the ball back to, oh my God, we almost lost it to, oh, we won. And there's this relief and excitement. It was, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't remember any emotional experience that I would say that I've had that is like that. I've asked a few people that. What was it just, like hey, on the what, field? It was, it was interesting because there's a lot of like sideline pass people and support staff and, you know, may, maybe there were some coach family. I'm not clear on exactly who all was allowed on the sideline, but, you know, a, a lot of people very invested in the game on the sidelines. So, you know, immediately the sideline erupts. I was watching it from the opposite side. Um you know, kind of thought they'd probably go to Mitchell again. Um, I've seen some people say, you know, if they'd, he, if we, Ewers had thrown it more back shoulder or like thrown it to the pylon instead, maybe it's a touchdown because it kind of looked like Jackson was, was playing the fade there deeper in the end zone. Um, and I've and what I saw like immediately from a few people was just, it was like euphoria from the players. I mean, going crazy, just like you'd imagine. I saw a few people like support staffers and I sort of mentioned this in my lead, um, you know, like in tears, you know, just like they couldn't, yeah. you know, not that they didn't believe they were going to win, but like once it happened, they just couldn't believe it, you know, that they were actually there, that it, that, that, you know, here they were celebrating a, a playoff win. I will say they didn't celebrate as long as, as they did after the PAC 12 championship game. That was like, I thought they were going to stay out there all night. Um, and it was kind of that way at the Alamo bowl last year too. Um, this one, you know, they did, they did the trophy guys kind of got off the field. And of course the coaches had to go and get right on a flight, um, and fly home. So, you know, there is, there, there was some, maybe some, some more urgency to that. And also, you know, you don't, uh, fans couldn't, families couldn't come down on the field. So guys are going up into the stands and, um, 
seeing their their parents and all the people they had at the game and everything it was uh it was unlike anything any of them have ever been a part of like literally right it's unlike anything washington's ever been a part of being in an actual playoff um and winning and knowing that you're going to go play for an outright national championship um just kind of seeing the look on people's faces not necessarily the players i think they're in a spot where they just feel like they can't be beat at this point um but kind of watching some people around and who are on the sideline and just really watching it set in that like wow like Washington really is going to play for a national title it was um it was it was a different scene to observe for sure it was also midnight <laughs> yeah god it was late and the game started so late it was, really, it was so late <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah it did it did uh the the one the i i think i said i had a blast around all the texas fans i mean really without ex with one exception there was i every interaction i had with texas fans was fun um the one exception was as i was walking home so at this point it's i mean it might be 1 30 and i'm getting close to my hotel which was in the garden district and I stop at the Circle K to get a bottle of water. And the dude behind me has on a Texas hat and he's getting a 12 pack. So he's he he's going, man. He's going. And he says, he goes, I feel like Washington got lucky. <laughs> so I turned to him, I was like, really? Because I was thinking the only reason you guys got so close at the end is because our running back got hurt. And he's like, You really think Washington is the better team? <laughs> I looked at him and I was like, ah. I don't think they just stumbled into 37 points <laughs> He goes, yeah, I think, I think they just got let off the hook. I think, I think Texas, Texas had them <laughs> at that point. I was like, Oh, maybe who are you guys playing next week? <laughs> Which I felt was the move at that point. Um, it was a classic game. Like it really was. And that will be, that will be one that, that no matter what happens going forward, will be remembered for a long, long time. So I, I saw this debated a little bit, and, and then we can get to Ian's question. Um, great to meet Ian at at, uh, at lunch before the game, by the way. Yeah. Um, we all broke bread. I had a roast beef po' boy. Christian had himself a a, a it was it was a chicken sandwich. Ian got a salad. Sensible fellow that he is. Where do you where how how do you parse Elijah Jackson's SWAT and and Richard Sherman's tip? Elijah Jackson's SWAT is more definitive. And kind of this, like, get that out of here. Sherman's was more strategic. There's still time left on the clock. What's weird is that Sherman had done that three weeks before in in, in New York. Maybe it was four weeks before. They played at New York at the Giants uh, toward the end of the regular season. They shut the Giants out. And Sherman had tipped a ball that was going out of bounds from Eli Manning back into the field to play, and Earl Thomas picked it off. In terms of consequences, they're very similar in in that sealing a victory that allowed the team to advance to the title game. Um, from an aesthetic perspective, I really like Elijah Jackson's because he winds up and he hammered that thing. <laughs> that was a gift. That out of here. Somebody told me that Skip Bayless is trying to say it's pass interference, which is insane. Um, I, I, I liked the authority with which Elijah Jackson dispatched it. So my, my thought is that, um, Richard Sherman's tip is not remembered nearly as fondly if the Seahawks don't win the Super Bowl, right? I mean, because that was, that was their year. That was that was the year for them. If they go and they lose to Denver, uh, it's you know it's a big play. It's it's a cool play. Uh, there probably is not a movement to uh, erect a statue entitled "Build the Tip." If, <laughs> if that doesn't happen, if they don't win the Super Bowl, <laughs> however. <laughs> Well, I think if Washington loses in the national championship game, Elijah Jackson's SWAT loses some juice. Um, I think it it stands alone probably more 
as a legendary play within the context of UW football. I don't I don't mean relative to like Richard Sherman's tip was a a game winning play in, in in the NFC Championship game. So like I'm not comparing the two, but within the context of UW's program history, I think that that play and and that win in in the semifinal against Texas is remembered as an all timer, even if they go lose to Michigan. That's just my thought on it. Maybe maybe time um, erases that, and if they were to lose to Michigan, maybe the manner of defeat would take even more juice out of it if they lose by a few scores, if they're not competitive, right, then who knows. But uh, I, I feel like, I mean, just in the pantheon of like legendary UW football moments, it's, it's got its spot regardless of what happens against Michigan. Yeah, I would agree with that. Is, is the SWAT, is that, is that the name we'll go with? I think that's what people are going. I mean, it was, it was a SWAT, you know, it was, it was very forceful. Um, and he, Get I can see what Bayless is saying with the pass. Like he did, he had his other hand up around his neck, but I think it was pretty incidental. And you're, you're just not getting that call um, on the very last play of a no. CFP semifinal unless it's super egregious. And the guy didn't also use his other hand to swat the ball away. Yeah, he just destroyed it. That was, yeah. No, it was not pass interference. He was making a play on the ball and he just destroyed it. The SWAT. All right. Our weekly conversation with Ian McFarland, although I guess this week we've talked to him twice, only one of which you'll be able to hear, which is this one. Ian recorded this from the Marriott, I believe, in the warehouse district there in New Orleans before uh, returning back to the the West Coast. Christian, Danny, um, really, really diving into 247 this morning and and want to take a look at, at 2027 in-state recruiting it looks like there's um some freshmen inside linebackers there's a kid out in aberdeen who's he's, he's only about 5'9 125 but you know the parents are, are good sized and his dad's a, a lumberjack and you know he he, he he racked up about 45 tackles on the freshman team for for aberdeen high so i i i think I, th- I think there's something we can spend five to 45 minutes on this morning. If, if, if you guys are cool with that, um, um, I'm still kind of at a loss as to how to react to, to last night's game. Um, I, the last play I saw what happened. I flopped in my chair and sat motionless for about three minutes, which I think is about what I would have done had, Texas completed the ball or not. But my question, I guess, is twofold. First, did you think it was over? Did you think Texas was going to go down and score? Because it was one of three moments this year where I had emotionally prepared myself for the loss. The first was ASU before Misha's pick. The second was the Apple Cup with four, the fourth and one call coming in. Um, and the third was this one. And I, I think I thought it was going to go the other way. So that's the first question. The second question is, do they have one more in the hat? Can they beat these entitled, holier-than-thou liberal arts majors for 60 minutes and cap off what has to be one of the most I don't know, inspired and uh, touched by fairy dust seasons in history. Can they do it? Great seeing you both yesterday. See you in Houston, baby. Go dogs. Do you think they got another one left? I I wrote this. If it just kind of feels, um, like I don't know it it feels sort of like hard-headed to pick against them at this point um I haven't decided who I'm gonna pick in the game I want to let the week play out and see if we get some more information one way or another especially on on Dylan Johnson I, I doubt we will at least definitively but um yeah I when you watch one team every week and watch them just find a way to do it over and over and over and over and over again, no matter the opponent or home or away or postseason or, or not. Um, it, it does, you reach a point where it's just kind of like illogical to pick the other team, unless it's just 
such a terrible matchup. And I don't think Michigan is a great matchup for them. Um, I think Michigan has the talent in the secondary to match up better with them than Texas did. And they've, you know, they, they're a very balanced team. They're a very balanced defense and a, and a very, very good defense, obviously. So, you know, I don't see them as any kind of like, you know, it's not a, it's not a 2016 Alabama situation by any means. Um, I think it'll be a great game and I think they can, uh, certainly. Yeah. I, I would, I'll, I'll say too, I, I did not form an opinion, um, about whether Texas was going to win or not on the last possession. Cause I thought, you know, I thought this, this feels very much like the offense is going to win the game because they made the big play to get down there and they got four shots at it from the 12, 13 yard line here. Um, but it kind of just goes back. I, I watched this team against ASU and I watched this team uh, against Oregon both times. And I watched this team win the Apple cup and I watched this team win at Stanford and I watched this team win at USC and I watched them win at Oregon state and I watched them beat Utah. And um, yeah, you just did, you watch it end the same way for one team every single week. It does kind of get to a point where you start to think, okay, when's this, you stop thinking, when is this going to end? And when is, when are they finally going to regress to the mean? And you just start wondering like, okay, well, how, how is it going to, how are they going to win this time? You know, who, who's it going to be this time who makes the play? So it's almost like they've entered that territory. I don't know if I had an opinion about who's going to win on that final Texas drive. I certainly had a fear about who was going to win or who in case of Washington might lose and how that was going to make everyone feel, uh, including me or maybe foremost me. I definitely think they've got another one in them. Um, For me, I thought that Texas moved away from the run too quickly. And I think that Michigan will not do that. But I also think that Michigan's vulnerability is that they're not aggressive enough on offense and they don't score that many points. I think that Washington can score on, on any team on any defense that's out there because of how their quarterback plays and, and the time that the offensive line gives them the the fact that they've faced a variety of really good defenses, including Texas's and You've you've seen Washington while they've been thrown off their game or had different different plans that have been thrown out. Look, there that's that's an offense. I'm not. I don't feel that Washington will end up in the situation like they were in 2016 against Alabama, where they're just kind of outclassed by the opposing. I just that, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I do I do worry about Michigan's ability to control the ball and you're not going to have a coach that <laughs> they're not going to abandon the run too quickly in this game. Um but I absolutely think they they've got another one in them. And I'll just just a I don't know if this will be a spoiler or whatever, but I'm going to pick Washington to win, Christian. I I know that that will come as a shock to everyone. <laughs> Very big surprise. I'm usually so measured in my predictions. Um, yeah, I, I, I do believe in them, and I believe because I believe in their offense, and I think that the talent um, of their quarterback and of their wide receivers and their offensive line's ability to provide time, even against Texas's talent on, on that defensive side of the ball. Yeah, Michigan's really, really physical, but M- Michigan's not capable of scoring like Texas. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm pretty optimistic actually. Kind of a full circle game. I think a lot of guys are going to play in this game who were, yeah. uh, in Ann Arbor in 2021 and, and, and you know, that. Michigan hasn't really changed stylistically since then, right? They want to bash it at you. Same running back, even Blake Corum. I mean, he's still there, um, yeah. with the, you know, JJ McCarthy obviously has a lot more, you know, they got a quarterback who's got more, more football under his belt, but, yeah, I I felt like when the pairings were announced that if you're Washington, you wanted Michigan probably and not Alabama um, in the championship game. After watching the Rose Bowl, I don't know that I feel similarly. Um, Alabama has just had all kinds of issues up front. Um, 
but it did i don't know i mean just not not having to chase around jalen milrow i think is is a plus it's gonna you know it's gonna be a tough game i mean it i i think i think michigan's better than texas um like i, I think michigan would beat texas also but I don't know. It's all about matchups. You don't know. This is all, it's all mythical fairy talk until these teams actually play on a field. Um, and, and, and you find out how they match up with one another. So we'll see. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be, I think the, the toughest test, like one through 11 defensively that Washington's faced this year. Um, I don't know that there's any like great secondaries in the PAC 12 Oregon statistically. And, and even through advanced stats was, was pretty good against the pass this year. And they obviously got a lot, a lot done um, against them throwing the ball and, and running the ball too in the PAC 12 championship game. So, um, you know, they've Oregon and Texas, if that's like the standard for athleticism um, in terms of defenses they've faced, they've, they've checked both of those boxes pretty well. So, you know, I think this is a step up. Um, and, you know, I, I just, they're very sound and they got after Alabama's quarterback like crazy. A lot that was maybe more a function of, of, um, some issues on Alabama's O-line that maybe Washington won't have, but, um, I think it's going to be a battle. You know, I, I think it could be maybe unlike any game they've played in that it's going to take a late score by Washington to, you know, pull into that tie game, maybe take a one point lead with a two point convert. Like it could be a little bit more of an uphill battle rather than Washington trying to not screw up a late lead. Like, like has happened in in a couple of their games. So um, we'll see. I think it's going to be about Ian. You'll be happy to know that the, uh, when I left the Sheridan, which is across the street from the Marriott in new Orleans on Wednesday, the, uh, the Longhorn was gone. So I think they'd removed it uh, the day after the game. It's not there anymore. It was not is not a permanent fixture. It turns out. I thought after the Pop Tart Bowl that the the thing was you got to eat something afterwards. So I thought we were going to slice up Bevo. <laughs> well, he's not the bowl mascot though. It you just it just be a big jug of sugar. <laughs> Wait, Bevo Bevo's the Longhorn, isn't he? Isn't he the big ass steer? Well, yeah, but he's not the bowl mascot. See the pop tart was it was the pop tart bowl oh. right? Oh oh I see I see I see. Well yeah same thing. You get to eat the other team's mascot. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. <laughs> Boy talk about high stakes man. That'd be the worst. <laughs> That'd be horrible. <laughs> That'd just be just this heinous. Nobody wants to win. <laughs> We are going to barbecue your eagle. <laughs> uh, on that Bring note. us your mascot for the ritual sacrifice. <laughs> it was it seemed uh, Bebo did right. remind me of well, the time that, that Steve Sarkeesian brought a live tiger to practice in preparation for playing at LSU. <laughs> <laughs> College football is so insane. <laughs> oh, man. You got to love it. The game's Monday. Um, I'll be flying back Tuesday. I imagine we'll regroup at our normal time. But we'll see. What, what's, your, what's your viewing plan for, for Monday night? Well, I'm going to be watching it here in New York. Uh, I have a medical procedure the next morning that I cannot delay. Uh, no need for any any overwhelming concern if anybody would feel any, but uh, I'm not able to to attend. So I'm going to be watching. I think I'll be watching here at my apartment, and and then then to then to the hospital the next morning. You're, you're not you're not you, you, you need to be by yourself for it. You don't want to go down to is it file feel the the bar. Uh, I have some prep work to do the night before. <laughs> <laughs> That kind of procedure. <laughs> yep. Hey, we can leave, listen. Men's health awareness. We can leave that in. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>